This is another Voices episode of Voices to Boats, the podcast of the Princeton Boater Drive. In this episode, Jack joins the podcast and talks to us about unionizing graduate students, passing the New Jersey Dream Act, and building movements. Never accept the way things are and always question everything. And understand that if you connect with other people, anything is possible in terms of being able to grow a movement, build a movement, and change something, whether it's in your own town, in your state, or the country that you live in. This is our story and yours, so please stay with us. So, first questions first. Where did you grow up, Jack? How did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Seoul, South Korea, born in 1989. I grew up there until about 1996, so when I was seven years old, Mm -hmm. and then I immigrated to this country. Where did you live afterwards? I lived in uh, New Jersey. I've been here the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Where in New Jersey are you from? Uh, Originally from Howell, New Jersey. It's a small town off of Route 9, right next to Freehold Township in Mount County, and then Mm -hmm. I moved to New Brunswick. When I started going to Rutgers as an undergrad. Oh, yeah, okay. It's really funny because my parents, um, they knew that we were moving to this country. So a year before we moved, it, they took me to Disney World. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we had a lot of fun. And so I thought we were moving close to Disney World. And then we moved to Howell, New Jersey. Right. So. <laughs> Is that the opposite experience from Disney World? I think so, yeah. All of a sudden, I went from Mickey Mouse and roller coasters to, you know, a townhouse and playing baseball in the backyard. (laughs) (laughs) What was growing up in suburbia, New Jersey like? It was interesting. You know, um, I came from the whole 90s, like, dot-com and IT bubble that a lot of East Asians come from that's not from the West Coast side. Mm -hmm. And so we had a relatively comfortable life. I never had to worry about food or Mm -hmm. housing or, you know, the education was really good. But the consequence of growing up in a suburb is that you're really isolated right. from the activities of the world. And so I grew up very bored and angry. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a common theme. I think so. How would you describe the diversity within your neighborhood? Non-existent. Non-existent. I think, I think people who look like me, and I'm, I'm a Korean, so I'm, you know, very stereotypically East Asian, were like right. less than 1% of the town. <laughs> yeah. We were a statistical error. <laughs> yeah. How did you feel about that? Was it tough or how did you adjust to it? It was a little tough. I faced a decent amount of racism growing Mm -hmm. up, uh, especially before I could master English as a second language. Mm -hmm. But later in life, like especially high school era, it was mostly just boredom. Yeah. Um, You know, same friends every day. If you need to do anything, meet up with other people, you need a car, which is not realistic for a 14-year-old. Yeah. So, yeah. You said you face racism in suburbia. What was racism in suburbia like? It was a, a lot of it was limited to my school, especially mm-hmm. second and third grade. I remember I was still learning the language, taking ESL classes. So I would like try to go to the bathroom in the middle of class. And mm-hmm. there would be a group of like five or six kids who would follow me. And they would do the whole stereotypical like squinty eyes, mm-hmm. try to stop me from using the restroom, you know, would get into fights with me. Right. I dealt with a lot of that, but that lessened as I got along. And Mm. I think, you know, that was one of those silly advantages to uh, living in a very demographically white town Mm -hmm. was that my assimilation was very quick. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to morph very well within the mainstream culture of this country. Mm -hmm. But you morphing into this culture doesn't mean that the culture accepts you. No. Right? Those are two different things. So how did you 
adjust to that? I mean, in some ways, you're kind of forced to adjust to it, and that right. helps because you have to go to school. You have to make new friends. You have to live in this country, and it's out of your control. You can't just immigrate back. You're a young child. You don't have agency or independence. So, yeah, yeah that's kind of what it comes down to is that it's a matter of survival. Mm-hmm. And when you start thinking of yourself as like, okay, I have no choice but to evolve, mm-hmm. um, then you can kind of pinpoint as to like how you can assimilate without necessarily giving away your identity. So, for example, my real name is Donggu, mm-hmm. but I go by Jack still yeah. to this day. And that was a name that I made up in second grade when I immigrated to this country. Right. But over the years, that has evolved into part of my identity. So now mm-hmm. I can't just let it go. Right. Because I have that experience of like the past 16 years or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's become a part of who I am. So what's your day job, Jack? My day job is uh, I'm an organizer. Mm-hmm. I'm an organizer with the American Federation of Teachers. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you work on as an organizer? Uh, currently, I'm working on the Princeton campus, trying to organize the graduate students, yourself and others, mm-hmm. into forming a union. So, how did you get into unionizing graduate students? How did you go from a kid from suburbia to a <laughs> union organizer? Well, certainly didn't expect this when I was still a kid in suburbia. I actually wanted to go to law school and run for office one day because I always wanted to get involved in some sort of realm of politics or social justice or change. And I always thought that that route was the best. Mm -hmm. And it also helped because in high school, I started really watching and getting into West Wing. (laughs) (laughs) And that show does a really, really well, you know, a good job in presenting government as a very glorified, Mm -hmm. you know, true service kind of nature. Mm -hmm. So that always attracted me. But then when I got involved in college, I started to get involved in some of the local politics in New Brunswick, mm-hmm. as well as some campus politics of, you know, rising tuition costs at mm-hmm. a public university, the lack of state support, and the lack of undergraduate student power, mm-hmm. where um, a lot of the people in the student government were seen as like the stereotypically resume patterns mm-hmm. who didn't really have issues, but, you know, just doing it for the sake of doing it. Right. And at the same time, there was this like larger forces, you know, out of our control, like the rising student debt. Yeah. Uh, which is still a problem in this country. Um, so I got involved very earlier on, got involved in like multiple nonprofit groups, education mm-hmm. groups, and eventually narrowed it down to Rutgers Student Union, mm-hmm. which was an undergraduate advocacy organization mm-hmm. fighting against campus tuition hikes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And coincidentally, there was at the same time a salary freeze mm-hmm. for all of the employees at Rutgers. So Part of the initiatives that I took on as an undergrad was to make an alliance with the local unions mm-hmm. at Rutgers, uh, faculty, staff, etc. And together we built an alliance to push back right. against the message of corporate ties higher ed, yeah. um, rising tuition costs, uh, the lack of you know salary pays for the staff, yeah. and we won. So right. I think uh, ever since then I kind of got addicted to <laughs> grassroots uh, power, right. and I realized that you know you can spend your life in the political field, Mm -hmm. running for office. But eventually that is limited to an individual's perspective. Whereas in this kind of work, if I can work to build more of a mass grassroots movement, then, you know, that's worth it to me in the long term. Because I feel like I can do a lot more work in my career that's beneficial. Hmm. So when you say the undergraduate student union, it's not an actual union. No, no, no. It's just the student organization name. Yes. Okay. You said a lot about power. Um, you seem like someone who's quite familiar with how power is built and structured. 
Can you try to explain to us in your head how does power work? Yeah, I think there's a lot of definitions floating around with yeah. many different groups and politicians and the like. But I think power comes down to the ability to make somebody do something that they wouldn't normally do themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's fundamentally what power is, right? The, 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 the nature of daily life is people are on autopilot. Mm-hmm. You're told what to do. You're told what to think. You're told how to feel. You are given a guideline for your life, right? Go to school, mm-hmm. get a job, et cetera, et cetera. But power is really looking at who determines the status quo. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it from that perspective, power is criti- critical mm-hmm. because nothing happens within a society or like by accident, it's always specific people pushing right. specific agendas, creating specific institutions, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so studying the nature of power, figuring out what moves people into action, figuring out what moves institutions into action, I feel, you know, it's almost like I can't study or practice anything else. Right. Just to, to clarify, do you think power is the ability to set norms? Yes, but... Beyond that, mm-hmm. because power is not just to set norms as a culture or as a society, mm-hmm. but to move groups of people mm-hmm. so that they buy in and take ownership of it. And that's essential. So it could be a more service or republic mentality. For example, mm-hmm. the U.S. government, everyone buys into it, mm-hmm. right? You know that this exists. If you get a traffic ticket, you're not going to get away with it. They're going right. to find you and you're going you're gonna to pay up. That's an example of power, yeah. something that is universally recognized and people follow. However, within, even within that mindset, there has to be layers of education and consent. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, nobody would follow the current structure of society. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the opportunities lie, where we can kind of dive in and figure out who is interested in what and yeah. could be moved into what level. Yeah. So what is a union's role in building power? A union is simple, but surprisingly seems to be missing in a lot of workplaces in America where you bring democracy to the workplace. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of the rhetoric being spouted in this country over elections and whatever is their love of democracy. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, when we talk about the workplace, then the conversation of democracy is missing. Mm -hmm. And I think building a union is to introduce that conversation of democracy Mm -hmm. into what you do day to day for your livelihood. When you say unions are misunderstood in the United States, mm-hmm. can you uh, dispel some of these myths about unions? How do people perceive unions here and what unions actually are? Yeah, I think I think the most common misinformation about unions in this country is that people just don't know what they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've gotten very used to a service economy mm-hmm. and a service culture, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the movies and there's a product that's being sold to you. Mm-hmm. You need some car insurance, so you call up Geico or somebody else. Mm-hmm. If you need your car towed, you get AAA. Mm-hmm. But the idea of a community organization whose primary focus is workplace self-interest and mm-hmm. growing workplace power mm-hmm. is a bit alien, because you expect, if you join an organization, for them to take care of problems for you. Right. And that's the biggest misunderstanding with unions, I believe, is that building a union means that you, as an employee, mm-hmm. claim responsibility and the moral high ground mm-hmm. in determining what you feel is important in your workplace. Right. 
and that's a fundamental misunderstanding I believe is is rampant across this country when it right. comes to organized labor. Right. It is not somebody coming in and fixing problems for you. Right. It is you feeling empowered so that you go along with your colleagues and say, we are smart enough and capable enough to know what our jobs are mm-hmm. and what needs to be fixed to make our lives better. Right, because there is inherent conflict of interest when employers set the working conditions. Yes, there is. And right. it's, it's incredible. It, uh, it can be a, a, a large amount of injustice or it can be extremely silly. Mm-hmm. You take a stereotypical episode of The Office, mm-hmm. the American version, not the British version. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember one of their episodes was just laughing about one of HR's presentations mm-hmm. on like office conduct or something. Mm-hmm. And people were laughing at it because it is inherently somebody who is part of management coming up with a presentation mm-hmm. on office culture that they feel mm-hmm. employees should respond to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a perfect example of an out-of-touch unilateral management's perspective, whereas if they had a union at the workplace yeah. in that office setting, and they say, we need to, we have this issue that's a problem within the workplace, can we come up with a solution? Right. I would guarantee you that the, the, the union, that collective, would better understand how to fix right. whatever you know, the complaints were in that scenario. Right. I guess in America, a lot of people believe that unions are overpowered it's controlled by these union bosses who are these like greasy guys who (laughs) would extort and do shady dealings in in your opinion how do you feel about the stereotype (laughs) if you want to entertain me this reminds me of winston churchill's quote right yeah i'm paraphrasing here but it it goes something like democracy is the worst form of government in existence Mm -hmm. but it's the best when you compare it to the rest. Mm-hmm. Or another quote by Winston Churchill, um, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Mm-hmm. But it's still the best form of government because the other types of government is authoritarian or dictatorship or fascism or monarchy, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. that takes away the control of the people. Right. And I think that's what the argument boils down to, that if you don't trust people to make their own decisions or right. elect their own leaders, then yes, the authoritarian path is the best for you, which is... Somebody in top of a position in any sort of hierarchy making unilateral decisions. Yeah. But even if there are some, using the world, for example, bad governments yeah. because their democracy has failed or they've produced bad leaders, and I would argue, depending on your perspective, currently we're going through that right now in the United <laughs> right. States. Right. But nevertheless, you wouldn't necessarily make the argument of dissolving democracy. Right. You would make the argument of... People need to be better educated. They need to be better include in the democratic process to pick better leaders, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So I think that's the same argument for unions is that the general idea is good. Yeah. That you have workplace democracy where people elect their own agenda and they elect their own leaders. Mm-hmm. There may be some unions out there who are not very good, which I would personally agree with. Right. But that is not an argument to override the whole system of allowing workers to pick their own agendas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you believe in democracy for governance, yes. it would only be logical if you believed in democracy for your workplace as well. Right. Like just because Donald Trump won doesn't mean we're calling for the abolition of the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> right. So I fail to see why the cherry picking of these bad union leaders that exist out there uh-huh. is is used as a main example. In yeah. fact, I know why, because it is a very clear talking point that stretches back to the founders of the labor movement, mm-hmm. is to highlight the ones who are bad, 
and right. use it as an example to keep everyone else afraid from acting. Uh-huh. And I feel like that is what a lot of the Princeton graduate students will find here. Yeah. Is that they're going to get multiple messages from, you know, their colleagues who don't want to unionize and from the administration mm-hmm. to try to dissuade them from taking any action. Yeah. So talking about anti-union messaging, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the common messaging against unions and how you would refute them? I mean, do you have an example of one? Because there's been... Yeah, a, a major example that I see a lot is why not unionize individual departments at Princeton? It seems like every department has different needs. I'm okay with that, but I don't want my contract to include details about the other department. Yeah, that is an interesting one. That's being, I think that's being talked about in multiple departments. Well, the first thing that I would challenge with that notion is how powerful do you want your union to be? Mm-hmm. If you want a union, you would ideally want the one that is the best organized, the best funded, and the most powerful. Mm-hmm. Because that way you can advocate for interest. In the same reign, having a union that is split by department by department by department mm-hmm. would mean that there would be like 20 or 25 different unions mm-hmm. just representing graduate students at Princeton. Yeah. That would be incredibly weak. <laughs> Each department would have to negotiate their own contract. Mm-hmm. So you can already imagine what a smart administrator would do, right? They mm-hmm. would give some departments that they like everything, and then they would drag out the negotiations on the ones that they don't like. Mm-hmm. It would weaken your own power. Yeah, Having a single collective bargaining unit would mean that, and this is going to sound cliche, but it's true, there's strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the talking point of wouldn't, you know, if we have a single contract or whatever, wouldn't that hurt other departments compared to all? I would challenge those people to read some of the contracts that exist in mm-hmm. other universities. Because I guarantee you, most of the contracts, if not all of them, yeah. set minimums, yeah. as in minimum standards for their benefits and pay and yeah. practices, and not ceilings. Mm-hmm. So that circumstances will arise where. Nobody can get, for example, paid below a certain amount. Yeah. But if a department chooses to, they can compensate people more than their union contracts minimum. Yeah. Another common argument that I hear a lot is that when you, when you sign the authorization to unionize, uh, you won't know what benefits you'll get. A lot of people consider unionization to be this transactional type of deal whereby I want to know exactly what I get with a union uh, before I sign any union cards, or else there could be a chance that I get screwed. How do you respond to that? Well, I guess an easy way to use as a metaphor would be if all the founding fathers of this country didn't sign on to the Constitution, um, if they didn't have all their demands met before they signed, then we wouldn't have a country to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I would argue the same sort of philosophy here is that the current campaign right now is to create an institution Mm -hmm. so that we would have a playground for all the grads to come together and discuss their own agenda and figure out what they want to negotiate and then negotiate. Mm -hmm. To do so now before we even have an election and have an organization would one be undemocratic Mm -hmm. and number because we haven't finished talking to all the grads so how Mm -hmm. the hell can we claim this is exactly what the campus wants Mm -hmm. and number two it would be redundant because we, you need to win an organization first. You need right. to have an institution so you can have the resources and some sort of a common vision 
to come around and have right. that sort of discussion. Right. So I would say that that is a little bit of putting the, the horse before the cart or yeah. the cart before the horse, whatever the right terminology is. Right, right, right. Yeah, I guess the unionization process is sort of like getting together the constitutional convention, right? It doesn't mean the constitution will be ratified by yes. all the states. That ratification will come at a later date yes. via democratic process. Absolutely. This would be to create the legally recognized, federally legally recognized organization that would advocate specifically for graduate students. Mm -hmm. And once we have that, the very next day, if you all chose to, which I don't think you will because you will already spend a day celebrating, but if you chose to, the very next day, we could call a meeting to write everything and come up with the agenda and send mm -hmm. out mass surveys and, you know, mm -hmm. do all of that. And if you are one of those listeners who is confused at this process or wants to get started on some of these conversations or doesn't know what's generally happening, get in touch, you know, call Mochi or get in touch with Mochi as well or myself or whoever else and we can get you plugged in as soon as possible. Great. All right, enough about unionization. You are a very politically active person because you see from the grassroots side of the, the issues at play here. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the current state of politics right now? I think it's... I, I guess the best word to use it is interesting. Mm -hmm. It is of interest because I can't stop reading the news. <laughs> I can't <laughs> stop digesting right. what is going on. It is like, um, unfortunately, it is the best reality show of its time. Mm. So much so that I really feel bad for the writers of House of Cards. Because <laughs> I think they might have to throw out their scripts. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I mean, you can't, you can't even write the stuff Devin Yunus does. <laughs> no, no. But I, I guess we can start with the, the orange elephant in the room. Right. The fact that somebody won the popular vote, mm -hmm. but is not currently the president, mm -hmm. I think speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. I think we can look at that part of the constitution of the electoral college mm -hmm. and come to our own conclusions. But in my personal opinion, it might be a bit arcane. Mm -hmm. When you have millions of votes casted for one person, I don't... <laughs> right. I guess it made sense back in the day when you didn't have any sort of electronic communication and yeah. you have to send a representative from where you are 20 days to Washington, D.C. and pick a president. Right. You know, electoral colleges make sense. But now maybe, maybe it's a little outdated. So is the electoral college the only complaint you have against the current no, American... No democratic government system? No, absolutely not. I also have a complaint about the voting day. Mm. The voting day was picked, the first Tuesday of the first Monday of every November was picked specifically so that people who could go to church mm. didn't have to worry about driving their carriages and horse the very next day on Monday. Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% sure on that fact, so if there is a fact checker out there, please correct me, but I'm pretty sure that that's how the voting day was, was decided. Obviously, we have this thing called cars now, mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily reality. So I would also complain about the voting day of itself. Mm -hmm. It should really be a national holiday, and right. it should really be longer than one day. Yeah. You cannot expect f almost 400 million people and 150 or whatever, whoever the eligible amount is, to vote in a 24-hour period in right. this modern day. And right. Besides the method of voting, do you believe that the current way we do congressional representation makes sense? Not particularly, no. 
I think that's another part that's perhaps maybe a bit arcane. Yeah. I think right now we have what is called the first past the post system mm-hmm. that inevitably, not by law, but by practice, limits the political arena to two parties. Yeah. And this is especially true in congressional races mm-hmm. where you, you don't have to win the majority, you have to win the plurality. Yeah. And that fundamental voting system discourages multiple, I believe, opinions. Mm-hmm. To be represented in the Congress. Do you believe that the institution of the executive branch is overpowered or underpowered? I think it's overpowered. Mm. In what ways? Uh, the cleanest example I think we can point to would be, in our generation's memory, would mm-hmm. be the expanse of the surveillance state. Mm-hmm. You had the Patriot Act, mm-hmm. very famously after 9-11, strip away a lot of the rights that we used to take for granted um, for wireless surveillances and mm-hmm. the like. Recently, you had the whole um, authority given to... I'm not quite sure if this is just limited to the surveillance agencies or through Congress agencies, uh-huh. but I'm pretty sure it's in the executive at, at the very moment, for them to you know expand on surveillances on your website searches mm. and then to allow corporations to sell your private information, right. your website histories. I think in those scenarios... With the expansion of the NSA, with the expansion of these unwarranted collection of, <laughs> collection of data, that's very troubling. Um, and it's even more troubling so because a lot of the people that within that field are career operatives. Yeah. Whereas the executive branch, the person who's at the top, is elected every four years. Yeah. So they can't necessarily fight mm-hmm. or curb the rise of this. Yeah. Um, so I fear that this is becoming the next big military industrial complex. Right. Where the executive doesn't have the power to curb that, mm-hmm. and it just grows exponentially on its own, mm-hmm. out of control. So in your head, what should be the relationship between the government and the governed? Ideally, the, the every single member in government would think of themselves as a public servant, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that mentality exists right, right. now. And the folks who are governed would see government as part of their daily life mm-hmm. and not as an external thing. I think mm-hmm. right now, the, the biggest times where people get involved in any sort of levels of government is when there's a crisis that happens mm-hmm. or whenever there's a presidential election. Mm-hmm. But you and I both know, and most of your listeners know, that it's everything else that's quite arguably more important, right? right. Your local city council... And your school board has more impact on your day-to-day life than does the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And same goes true for your state legislators versus your congressional representatives, mm-hmm. right? Most higher funding comes through your state. Most transportation fundings come through your state. Mm-hmm. NJ Transit, which is a fucking nightmare, <laughs> is mostly covered through the state. So these, these ignored, relatively ignored, and I say ignored with good evidence, like local yeah. elections here, for example, is decided by dozens, if not less than 100 yeah. votes. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's part that matters. But I don't necessarily just blame people who are covered. Yeah. Because I don't think it's necessarily apathy. Yeah. I think people genuinely care about the society that they live in, but it's alienation. Mm-hmm. It's the inability to make that connection to why this is important and for the people who are currently in government that practices not trying to fit within their constituency, that mm-hmm. drives this alienation. Mm-hmm. How do you think will be good ways to, to fix this? I'm skeptical of any policy remedies mm-hmm. um, because at the end of the day, we can boil down this problem to people are not engaged yeah. enough. 
And if more people were engaged enough, there would be less corruption because more things will be out in the open. Yeah. You know, people will be able to mobilize. So I think the question is, how do you get more people engaged? Yeah. Um, and you have to break down the alienation. Mm -hmm. So obviously I'm biased in this, but I think it's through grassroots power. Mm -hmm. If you are able to organize groups of people who would normally sit on their ass at home, or are way too busy to get involved in civic life. But if you can get them organized in some sort of way mm -hmm. and have a continued presence and expand from there, that's a good start. Hmm. But it has to come from the bottom up. It can't be a unilateral policy decision that will hopefully encourage some sort of voter turnout. So you've been involved in New Jersey politics a little bit, so I heard. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, sure. I mean, my experience is very, very limited because it was literally just trying to push like one piece of legislation to the state house. Right. Um, but that, that campaign was the, the New Jersey tuition equity bill mm -hmm. or, you know, more popularly termed as the DREAM Act mm -hmm. to allow undocumented students to go to college here and pay the same rates. Mm -hmm. um, it was an interesting experience because it took a long time and Governor Christie was running for a second term and he's not necessarily the most inclusive when it comes to <laughs> immigration right. issues. So we spent a lot of our time like going after legislators, locking down votes, you know, trying to change public opinion, which we were able to do, multiple news hits, visits to the governor's office and his campaign offices. It was a long time. It was a bit of a struggle, but we won in the end. Mm -hmm. um, but the process that I learned, or the most important thing I learned, is the default nature of the legislators mm -hmm. is one where they don't necessarily care about your issue. Hmm. Um, it's only in the circumstances that you make them care about your issue mm -hmm. that, you know, they spur to action. So, right. you know, in the beginning stages of our Dream Act campaign, we would go around and asking for endorsements mm -hmm. um, from state legislators and city councils. And most of them would say no, hmm. because they expected this bill to fail on the floor. Mm -hmm. They didn't think that they had enough votes yeah. and they didn't want to risk their own political capital mm -hmm. as being the first hmm. to endorse this bill. Right. No one wants to take leadership. Exactly. Even if they were elected to take leadership. Right. But that's besides the point. Uh, so, so that was a pretty hard part. But once we got over that hump and built momentum, mm -hmm. things spiraled out of control in a good way. Mm. Because then we were getting requests for right. interviews. We were getting requests for people to sign on to the bill. Right. It became a lot easier to go and sit in an advocacy meeting or do yeah. a rally in a protest. Because we knew that people were going to support us eventually. Mm. Um, but that, even that hump, you know, yeah. that was the most tenuous part, I think. How do you build support for a bill like this? Do you talk to uh, the constituents of these legislators and say, hey, call your legislator and make sure that they support this bill? Or do you lobby through some other process? You do both. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind that that's one part. Mm -hmm. Right. Lobbying and advocacy is one part. Mm -hmm. The second part is the public opinion mm -hmm. and external pressure. So we didn't just talk to the constituencies who would be affected or the legislators. We talked to any and every group that would be interested in this thing. Mm -hmm. um, churches, uh, faith based organizations, other unions, uh, immigrant organizations mm -hmm. like LALDEF. Right. Um, we would talk to any college students who were just sympathetic to this issue, faculty yeah. members, teachers who were teaching undocumented students in their K through 12 districts. Yeah, board of trustees members of community colleges who mm -hmm. you know would like to see this policy changed. So you start to 
get you know endorsements and suggestions for multiple areas, especially in fields that people would normally not expect. Because mm-hmm. who would expect a Catholic church in the middle of New Jersey to stand up for undocumented students' rights? Yeah. Um, but you find these these strange allies, and they add on to the moral high ground of your campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I think that's the the thing is that you have to work with the right ingredients mm-hmm. in the practice of building power and movements. If you don't have the right ingredients to begin with, then you're going to lose. If you're not fighting for the right things to begin with, yeah. if I wasn't fighting for the Dream Act, if I didn't have undocumented students who were pissed off that this was the status quo and they wanted to change things, then it wouldn't have happened. Like right. none of the advocacy, none of the lobbying would have mattered if I didn't have that constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same thing with the the grad movement here. Yeah, if they're expecting the transactional thing, if they're expecting somebody to come in on a horse and save everything, right. then it's not going to happen. Right. But if they believe in the idea of building a movement and yeah. an organization, then we've got something to work with. I see. Hmm. There's this quote that I really hate, <laughs> but it's, it's half true. Um, never doubt that a small group of people can change the world because it's the only thing that ever has. Hmm. The only thing that ever has is a lie, but the first half is incredibly powerful. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's something to think about. Yes. So what are some of the major political issues that you personally care about? I guess on the immediate, you have the classical list mm-hmm. of climate change, because mm-hmm. I would like to breathe right. <laughs> when I'm 50. Yeah. <laughs> Economy, because the way that the system is designed, everything is a bubble, and then eventually it crashes. Mm-hmm. For example, student debt at $1.3 trillion and rising that you can't bankrupt out of might be the next bubble. Uh, That's an issue. War Mm -hmm. is an issue. Um, We have no system of international law. This current international law is, please don't do this. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, So eventually we should have some sort of an international agreement. Um, And, you know, the fact that I think in 2017 we can put things into out of space, but we can't quite yet feed people Mm -hmm. is a fundamental issue that we're dealing with. Yeah. In terms of the long term, I am increasingly falling in love with this policy idea of a universal basic income right. as a potential stopgap, not a solution, but a stopgap to the rising level of automation and the lack of career jobs that are out yeah. there. Yeah, you talked a little bit about uh, service jobs yes. in, in the United States. Can you Tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on the service sector. Yeah, um, this buys into, and I really hate the phrase, but this gig economy or the shared economy mm-hmm. bullshit, mm-hmm. this um, idea of like, oh, the millennials, they just want like a beanbag in their office. No, I'd rather have <laughs> fucking healthcare. <laughs> like, <Right. it's laughs> I think it's an unfortunate consequence of how the economy has developed where most of the jobs are shifting to service areas uh-huh. or healthcare. And, you know, that's definitely one thing that's not going to go away for a while. But in that same vein, the responsibility of living is placed more and more on the individual rather than Mm. the society for things that we took as basic transportation, Mm -hmm. right? You have Uber taking over everything or Lyft, Mm -hmm. and they're even talking about automating all their cars in the next 15 years. So even this current model is slowly becoming outdated as we speak. And then you have this idea of like Airbnb or whatever else is out there where you have to share with what little that you have mm-hmm. instead of coming together and collectively building and getting more and more of the theoretical pie that is out there, right? So 
I'm a little skeptical <laughs> as of to whether the service. This, of the service economy mm. is sustainable for the long term. Right. Eventually, people are going to have to have a little bit more stability, I think. Mm -hmm. So what's the, the correct model to think about this? If the no service idea. economy is not going to uh, help us and we're losing manufacturing jobs and we're losing coal mining and all of this, all of this stuff, right? Like, how will people get jobs? It's hard to think about. I don't think there's one clean model. Uh -huh. I think, like many answers to many problems, it's going to be a f it's going to be multiple factors. Mm -hmm. I think one of those factors, and this is not going to be a surprise coming from me, but like an increased level of unions. Mm -hmm. If you elevate the floor of multiple industries, then it becomes harder to exploit people within that industry, mm -hmm. right? And and I guess as an example would be adjuncts. Mm -hmm. Adjuncts are on the rise, where it's supposed to be a part-time, small, you know, percentage of the college campus. Now some schools are using adjuncts as majority of their teaching labor. Right. But they're still getting paid the same rate that they were being, being paid in the 90s. Yeah. Um, if you raise and unionize the, all the adjuncts in this country and rise the floor level, yeah. then it becomes harder for higher education as an industry to exploit adjunct labor. Right. So that's one way that you go by it. Another way would be to encourage through law and through practice, more employee-owned workplaces. Mm -hmm. I mean, the prime example from the classical studies is always Mondragon in mm -hmm. Spain. Um, and then there's some companies in the United States, but I think the most popular employee-owned businesses tend to be like <laughs> brewing companies. Right, right, right. <laughs> so if, they, if that can expand beyond that stereotypical bubble, I think that would be healthy. Mm -hmm. um, but. I mean, I don't know. We can talk about this all day. There are policy things that you can do, yeah. right? Re, reinvesting in the in the community through housing, through transportation. Why the hell are there tolls on highways? Shouldn't that be paid by our taxes? Right. <laughs> Which drives me crazy as a yeah. New Jersey commuter. Right. Um, why is there no train line going from Ramapo to all the way to South, you know, from Bergen to Ocean City or whatever? Why do you have to transfer in Trenton? Yeah. <laughs> These basic um, investments that allow for ease of travel and capital and people to move, mm -hmm. you know, that, that could be helped. And then maybe investing in future technologies and jobs. Hmm. But again, these are all, there's no one size fits all. It's right. all different factors. It is a hard problem to solve yes. for anybody. You, you talked a little bit about the climate is a very big issue for you. Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit more about your beliefs that if climate change is happening and how people should deal with it. So I guess one thing that should alarm all the graduate students at Princeton especially is that climate change is such a big factor in our lives that coffee is being threatened. Mm. And let that sink in for a moment. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> a world without coffee. No, I mean, look, I, I think this is a big problem because everything that we've been talking about can be solved through human policies. Mm -hmm with the exception of climate change if we let this continue. Hmm. Like with, you know, fixing the roads and bridges or whatever, we can yeah. eventually come up with a spending package and right. get that shit on the way. Maybe a bridge will collapse and people will die, but yeah. you can at least fix the bridge. Yeah. With the planet? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I'm right. not exactly sure what the no, no return point is. Yeah, but there is a breaking point. Yeah. You talked a little bit that you don't think war is a sustainable model for society. No, of course not. What is the proper way to resolve conflicts? 
I mean, there's a few theories of this, mm-hmm. so, and I'm not really convinced on I- either of them. Mm-hmm. So again, I think this is down to multiple answers and multiple factors. But yeah. like one thing that could happen that could alleviate this is, and this is a bad word these days, but like there are decent parts to globalization. Mm-hmm. Connecting more people to one another, establishing international law mm-hmm. <laughs> with maybe enforceable rules. Either that's strengthening through the International Criminal Court or the UN body or something else. I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's not completely based on neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. I think think the more that you place the world into a superpower structure where there is no clear authority that is democratically governed and you place more countries into permanent debt, Mm -hmm. those two factors are great contributors in rising conflicts. Mm -hmm. So those things need to end. And thirdly, I think quite frankly, like there's a reason why Syria is in this mess in the first place. And what is that? a lot of military interventions <laughs> over the years and a lot of carving up of, of you know, pre-colonial powers yes. by the, the, the Western powers that be without the consent of those governing nations that led to the mess in the first place. So I would also argue for perhaps less intervention yeah. militarily that is specifically focused on only U.S. interests because mm. uh, that has proven time and time again in history mm. to produce disastrous results not just limited to the Middle East, mm-hmm. but also limited to the countries that me and you come from. Mm-hmm. Yes. Korea has faced this a lot. Yeah. In fact, we just ousted a president whose legacy was through U.S. intervention and her dad was a former dictator. Yeah, I think, I think lessening of the military uh, exercises would be generally good for the world. <laughs> you know, I think the big clear example to use in this case would be the invasion of Iraq. Yeah. There is no objective fact. Yeah where you can claim that the invasion of Iraq was good for anybody, mm-hmm. except for perhaps the owners of Halliburton. <laughs> <laughs> right. It did not do us any good in terms of strengthening this nation. Mm-hmm. It did not make the United States safer. Mm-hmm. It did not help out the Iraqi people. And it certainly did not stop any sort of escalation of the fuckery that is happening within the Middle East right now. So... I guess we're, we're, we're coming to an end here, and I always want to wrap up with, with two questions. One is, if you could have a message to any politician, who would you give the message to, and what would you say? Or anybody, I guess. doesn't have to be a politician. I mean, for the general public, I would say never accept the way things are and always question everything. And understand that if you connect with other people, anything is possible in terms of being able to grow a movement, build a movement, and change something, whether it's in your own town, in your state, or the country that you live in. Mm -hmm. In terms of politicians, I would say don't ever forget that you're a public servant. Mm -hmm. I know it's really, really hard because we have this celebrity culture of worshipping people we like, but, you know, you work for the people. Mm -hmm. And... um, and that's, that's that at the end of the day. But for the people, I would say, you know, uh, and this is something that I said over and over again when we were advocating for the, the, the tuition equity bill for yeah. the document students was these legislators are not special. They are just as dumb as you are. <laughs> <laughs> They're just as anxious about the things that they don't know. Yeah. And they want to look good. And so if you want to get more involved in politics, if you want to influence policy and, 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 you know, legislation, just remember that these are people at the end of the day. Yeah. Nobody is a god. And 
the last question I want to ask you is, uh, can I get you to commit to some sort of political action uh, in the coming weeks and months? I think so. Yeah, what would you do? I think I will organize. <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean in detail? I think, I think I will continue to do my work here at Princeton, mm -hmm. talking with as many grad students as possible. I mm -hmm. think um, eventually there's going to be some sort of crisis that comes up with this administration, mm -hmm. uh, Trump. I might be in D.C. for the Earth Day action um, for the Science March, mm -hmm. because I would like to see maybe scientists continue being funded. That's right. probably a good idea, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> Just maybe. And I'm sure there's going to be something that happens over the summer and the fall. Mm -hmm. so. Are you going to campaign for any particular uh, individual for this coming election? I'm not sure if I'm going to personally campaign. Um, it depends on what happens with the primaries in the state for the yeah. governor's race, because I believe New Jersey and one of the state is the only two states running yeah. an off-year election. So the governor's race is going to be super important. Right. And right now, it looks like Murphy's going to be the head of the Democratic mm -hmm. uh, primaries, and Guadano is going to probably win the Republican one. Yeah. Um, I am skeptical that Guadano is going to win because she was the lieutenant to Christie. Right. And everyone hates Christie. Right, right. <laughs> um, but I also claimed to my upstairs neighbor that Hillary Clinton was going to win 100%. Right. So I'm not going to predict any, right. <laughs> any political elections for the time being. Right. So uh, just one quick add out. What are your opinions about the four Democratic candidates that are running? Well, yeah. Johnson, I have no idea, but he must he must have some connections to the uh, the National Democratic Party because he stole all of the campaign staff from the, the old Clinton and Obama's uh, field operatives. So mm. kudos to him, but I have no idea what he stands for and I have no idea who he is. Uh, Lesniak is, I suppose, smart. Yeah. But the people who do know him don't like him. Hmm. And the people who don't know him are like 98% of New Jerseyans. So I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how he's going to win. Murphy's interesting. He he's always says the right things. Yeah. Um, but of course, his past is being a Goldman Sachs executive. So that might come to haunt him in the future. So I don't know what to think of him. Because he, I never met somebody who like says all the right things in the speeches. Right. Um, or, or thinks, you know, says all the populist stuff mm -hmm. with the history that he has. Um, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. And then Wisniewski, 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 whatever. I mean, he's another paradox. He's very similar to Murphy in my mind because yeah. Murphy comes from a Goldman Sachs background. Yeah. But is selling himself as this progressive technocrat. Yeah. Um, and then Wisniewski is selling himself as this pro-Bernie outsider. Yeah. But he's been in part of the Middlesex County Democratic Party <laughs> machine for like 20 years. Right. It's so like these both two different, you know, two very uh, different people selling themselves as opposite of their history. Right. Um, so I guess, you know, the same thing with, with Murphy. He's not as clever in his mm -hmm. speeches as Murphy is. Yeah. But he's continuing his progressive pokes publicly. Yeah. So I'm interested to see what happens, yeah. you know, with both of them. I don't particularly care for any of them. Yeah. I don't think any of them are like true bastions of democracy or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you can't get elected in New Jersey without some sort of level of backroom deals and stuff like yeah. that. You have too strong of political machines in the Democratic side and the Republican side are is just as crazy as the national level. So you don't really have the best choices here. Yeah, no favorites? No, but I do have a prediction. I think it's going to be Murphy.
Hmm. Interesting. All right. Thank you so much for talking with us, Jack. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to another Voices of Votes episode. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave an awesome review on iTunes. If you live in or around Princeton and would like to share your voice on the podcast, please contact us at voicestovotes at gmail.com. Special thanks to Frederick Grace for the artwork and Jamal Williams, aka DJ Motion Correct, for the music. We'll be back soon, so stay tuned.